Sorry. Hello, I'm William Henry. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I shall be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm Michael Penny. Now, in Luke 11, 14, we read that Jesus cast out a demon from a man. The demon caused him to be dumb, and afterwards the victim was able to speak. Yeah, but Jesus frequently did these exorcisms, didn't he? In this case, I think the emphasis is not so much on the miracle itself, but on the argument that followed it. Luke says this in chapter 11, verse 15. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Yeah, but note, there does not seem to be any question as to whether or not the Lord was casting out demons. It was only about how he was doing it. So were they seriously suggesting that Jesus was using the power of Satan to cast out Satan? Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus exposed the silliness of that argument as we read in Luke 11, verses 17 to 18. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Yes, he also pointed out that some of their own followers were trying to do exorcisms themselves. So were they harnessing the power of Beelzebub? Oh, surely not. No, no, I don't think so. But if it was not Satan's power that Jesus was using, what was the alternative? And could the Jews accept that? But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. That's in Luke 11 verse 20. Why do you think it's the finger of God? Yeah, strange that, isn't it? But you know, Pharaoh's magicians told him uh, way back in Exodus 8, I think it was, that the plagues that Moses inflicted on Egypt were the finger of God. However, in Matthew twelve twenty-eight, in the parallel passage to the one we're reading in Luke, Jesus said it was by the Spirit of God. He is really trying to show it is the power of God that is casting out these demons and indeed performing all the other signs as well. Yeah, the, the kingdom of God had come among them, hadn't it? John the Baptist had alerted to them to the coming king and the coming kingdom. Mm. Jesus, had, Jesus had also proclaimed that the kingdom of God is at hand. So all they had to do really was to believe that Jesus was their Messiah, Christ, the son of David. He was the one who was to come to reign on his throne. If they would only believe that, the kingdom could have been set up there and then. Yes, that's true. Uh, mind you, many people were impressed at the Lord's eloquence and his authority. For example, in Luke eleven twenty seven, it states that a woman in the crowd called out to him. Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Yeah, but immediately Jesus pulled her back to the heart of the matter, didn't he? He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And that's in verse 28. Oh, absolutely. He was calling on them to believe and obey, not just dish out superficial compliments. But really, I think a lot of the Lord's exasperation was at the people's indecision, wasn't it? The fact that they kept sitting on the fence rather than making up their minds one way or another. See what he says in verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me 
scatters. You know, that's kind of different from what he said back in Luke 9, verse 50, where we get this. Whoever is not against you is for you. So, why the difference? <laughs> yeah, good question, that. Well, in Luke 9, he is talking about those who are helping the work by casting out demons. But during Luke 11, he is rather annoyed at the people who refuse to commit themselves, and they are really hindering the work by their humming and hawing. Oh, always asking for more signs, even though they'd seen plenty, I guess. Yeah, the ongoing demand for a sign is interesting, isn't it? A couple of minutes ago, Sylvia read that people who had just seen a demon being cast out were demanding a sign from heaven. Is, is the casting out of a demon not enough of a sign? Oh, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? I would have, anyway. Maybe they wanted to see something, you know, really spectacular. The appearance of an angel, or darkness at noon, or sometime during the daytime, or something spectacular. But funnily enough, it was the miraculous signs that Jesus came back to, to talk about next. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. But as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. And that's in Luke 11, verses 29 to 30. Yeah, Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, wasn't he? He was a prophet to Nineveh. I don't see quite how he was assigned to Nineveh. And also, in what way was he assigned similar to Jesus for the present generation? Yeah, it's not very clear, is it? I think the answer is given to us in the version of this incident that we find in Matthew's Gospel. But as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And that's in Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40. Right. So that was the way it was assigned then, was it? I suppose it must have been pretty miraculous for the Ninevites to see Jonah being vomited up by the fish after three days and three nights in its stomach. Yeah, and I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard it said that the acid in the fish's stomach would have damaged Jonah's skin, so the Ninevites would have had no doubt where he had been. Yeah, but if that was very striking to the Ninevites, I'm sure it must have been even more amazing for the disciples to see the Lord Jesus resurrected from the grave after three days and three nights. That must be the ultimate in signs, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. But, you know, the Ninevites knew little or nothing of God, yet they repented when Jonah preached. The, the Israelites, on the other hand, with their knowledge of God's revelation of himself through the scriptures, had not responded to Jesus, their Messiah, when he came, in spite of all the miraculous signs he had done, which the prophet said the Messiah would do. So their condemnation will be all that greater. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus said there in Luke 11, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Yeah, I think that is a really important point, actually. The greater the privileges we have, for example, in knowing God's revelation of himself in Jesus, the greater our responsibility. If we know the truth and turn away from it, we are likely to be held more accountable than those who know nothing of Jesus and his love. 
Absolutely. But the, the Jewish leaders were not dismissing Jesus altogether, were they? I mean, right after Jesus had talked about Jonah, then we find him being invited to a Pharisee's house for a meal. And he went. But they didn't really go off to a very good start, did they? But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. It's in Luke eleven thirty-eight. It does seem a bit strange, isn't it, that Jesus would go in to be the guest in someone's house and then sit down for his dinner with dirty hands. <laughs> well, I don't think his hands were dirty as such. It was much yeah, more of a ceremonial washing rather than a washing to, to remove dirt and grime. It was the sort of thing that the Pharisees were sticklers for. And maybe this man thought that Jesus, as, as he was a religious teacher, would have been more scrupulous about such things like that. But the Lord showed him what he thought of such empty ceremonies. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the, the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. It's in Luke 11, verses 39 to 41. Yes, yeah, quite confusing, actually. I find it that way. Anyway, Jesus often accused the Jewish leaders of hypocrisy. So I can understand what he means by accusing them of keeping the outside of the dish clean, but not bothering about the inside. But what, why does he talk about giving to the poor rather than just say, keep the inside of the dish clean too? Well, I think we have to look at the context. Mainly what Jesus says next in verse 42. There he criticizes the Pharisees for carefully measuring out tenths or tithes, minuscule amounts of mint and other herbs as offerings to God, yet ignoring the much more important matters of justice and giving really meaningful help to those in need, and especially the widows and orphans. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practised the latter without leaving the former undone. That's in Luke eleven forty-two. So wrong priorities, eh? Yeah, exactly. You know, in the message um, by Eugene Patterson, that's his paraphrase, verse 41 is good. It, this is what it says. Turn both your pockets and your hearts inside out and give generously to the poor. Then your lives will be clean, not just your dishes and your hands. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Jesus really had no time for the small-minded legalism of the Pharisees. And then in verses 43 and 44, he had another go at them for always seeking to get the approval of men. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like, unmar you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. Oh dear, unmarked graves. He certainly didn't pull his punches, did he? Oh, I think it's quite funny because there was obviously other guests at the meal too, and a lawyer really kind of mildly suggested that by insulting the Pharisees, he was insulting them too. Yes, I don't know whether the lawyer expected Jesus to apologise, but instead the Lord then turned on the lawyers also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, Woe to you, 
because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will, will not lift one finger to help them. And that's in Luke eleven forty six. Yes, I think this is one of the most serious attacks that the Lord makes against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The lawyers had turned God's law into a burden. It added all sorts of rules, regulations, bringing in all sorts of prohibitions that were completely pointless. And it was so bad that ordinary people just couldn't understand it. And the bits that they could understand, they found very oppressive. And that's not really what God's law was intended to be like. Well, that's true, yeah. The lawyers had taken away the key of knowledge and prevented ordinary people from having access to that knowledge. So they completely perverted the law and how it was used. Yeah, and not only that, but Jesus went on to declare that they had built up the tombs of the prophets. And by doing that, they aligned themselves with their forefathers who had murdered those prophets. But Jesus's final conclusion is pretty devastating as we read it in Luke eleven fifty to 51. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. This one generation will be held responsible. Well, Abel, he was murdered by Cain, wasn't he, way back at the beginning of Genesis? But what about Zechariah? Who was he? That's not John the Baptist's father, is it? He was Zechariah. Or is it the prophet that wrote the book in the Old Testament? John's father? You must be kidding me. No, he wasn't. He was murdered. He probably died of old age, I suspect. No, it's actually neither of the men you mentioned. Zechariah that Jesus was talking about appears in two chronicles. He was the son of Jehodiah, the priest. And after his father's death, the people stopped worshipping the Lord and they turned to idols. Zechariah protested against this and warned them against disobeying the Lord's commands. And we read about this in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 21 and 22. They plotted against him, and by order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, shown him, but killed his son, who said, as he lay dying, May the Lord see this and call you to account. Now, see, it's that final dying curse of Zechariah on Joash that is really scary. And shortly after that, King Joash himself was murdered because he had killed Zechariah. But here in, in Luke, Jesus is saying that the full accountability of the nation for the deaths of all these innocent people would be imposed on the generation of Jesus' time. Why then, do you think? Well, they had rejected John the Baptist, who came in the power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord, and now they were in danger of rejecting Jesus also, which they, of course, eventually did. It's, it's all very sobering to read. Yes, and, and Jesus was really focused on warning the nation about the consequences of rejecting him. Yeah, you know, during his ministry, John the Baptist also warned the people that God's judgment was coming on that generation of Israelites. For example, um, in Luke 3, verses 7 to 9, we read what John said to the crowd who came to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Yeah, John's whole ministry was to call people urgently to repent, wasn't it? Because the Lord was actually among them. He was present with them. So the whole thing is heading up to a big climax. So the question is, of course, would they accept Jesus as their Messiah or would they not? Yeah. And then at the start of Luke chapter 12, Jesus came back to warning the disciples and anyone else who was listening against what he called the yeast of the Pharisees, which he said was hypocrisy. But, you know, the Pharisees would not be able to conceal their true nature for very much longer. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It's in Luke 12, verses 2 to 3. So the time's getting short then. Everything would be brought out into the open. There would be judgment and hearts and inner thoughts and motives would be exposed then to the light of day. They should have been able to see this coming, should they not? Yes. Yeah, I think they should have been. And at the end of chapter 12, Jesus again pleads with them to read the signs of the times. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? That's in Luke 12, verses 54 to 56. I suppose people living in an agrarian community would become experts at weather forecasting. So why could they not see God's judgment, which was on the horizon like storm clouds? Uh, not sure, really. However, again, Jesus calls them hypocrites here. But what was the hypocrisy? I, I don't really see it. Any ideas? Well, I don't know. Earlier, he'd criticized the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for concentrating on things that were really unimportant, like the tithing of herbs while ignoring the really important things like justice and truth and helping the poor. And here they're developing their expertise in predicting showers or sunny periods, but ignoring the really big storm, if you like, that was coming, the one that was threatening to sweep them all away. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right there. And in verses 57 to 59, Jesus makes the same point again, but he uses a slightly different illustration. Here he talks about a law court. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Gosh, Jesus really isn't letting go of this, is he? God's judgment potentially going to break on this generation and they couldn't see it or they wouldn't see it. He talked about the Lord's statement that the blood of the martyred prophets would be avenged on this generation, especially if they committed what I suppose is the ultimate sin of rejecting and murdering God's son. Yeah. So just like someone wanting to do a deal with a person who was suing them before they reached the courts, Israel needed to repent and make peace with God 
before they were pronounced guilty in his courtroom and then condemned. Yeah, and he's not finished yet. At the start of chapter 13, we find people telling Jesus of this brutal act by Pilate when he murdered people from Galilee while they were sacrificing to God. And Jesus immediately pulls this subject back to repentance and judgment. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Luke 13 verses 2 to 5. Yeah, that, that's a big issue, isn't it? Why do the innocent suffer? Here, Jesus is suggesting that those who died, whether as a result of Pilate's brutality or through natural causes, like the collapsing of a tower, were not being punished because they were worse sinners than anyone else. From our point of view, there seems to be a randomness about suffering in a fallen world. What we all need to do is have a right relationship with God, by repenting and believing in Jesus, so that if a disaster happens to us, we will be eternally secure. Oh, oh, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think Jesus was making a general pronouncement about the nature of suffering in the world. Do you not? No, no. While it's true, I think that people obviously do suffer terrible things which are not their fault. I think Jesus' point was much more specific than that, and I think... It needs to be taken in the context of the warnings that he's been giving to the Jewish people. Um, what do you mean there? Well, I'm not quite certain I follow you. Can you explain a bit more, please? Well, the people of Israel had rejected the prophets, as we read in the Old Testament. This generation of Jews had already rejected John the Baptist, and now they were in danger oh. of rejecting the Lord, their Messiah. If they did that, God's judgment for all these sins would fall in them that generation, and the instrument of that judgment would be the Romans. So is that why you get this repeated co comment in the verses Sylvia just read, unless you repent, you too will perish? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we've quoted the New International Version, but I think some of the other translations make this a lot clearer. For example, the English Standard Version says this for Luke 12, verse 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, you'll all die in the same way. That is by the swords of Roman soldiers or by the destruction that's caused in the cities when the buildings were destroyed by these same soldiers. And that warning, of course, turned into a reality when the Romans demolished Jerusalem and massacred the people in AD 70. Okay. I suppose the disobedience of the people of Israel and their rejection of the prophets God said to them, had been building up over centuries. Yeah, look at the way the Old Testament ends. These are the final words of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. See, I will turn you the prophet, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. That's in Malachi 4, verses 5 to 6. Right. Now, when John the Baptist's birth was foretold at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel said this to John's father, Zechariah. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's in Luke 1 verse 17. So you see the similarity with what Malachi said about Elijah? Yeah, yeah. And of course, John came to prepare the way for the Lord. And in Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus says this about John. If you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Right. So Israel murdered the one who was potentially Elijah. And we're now heading towards murdering the Lord. And Malachi had foretold the wonderful days of the fathers turning to the children and the children turning to the fathers. But that would only be if they received Elijah. And Malachi warns them of the alternative. And it's a pretty stark alternative. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So that curse is looming larger on the horizon as Jesus spoke to the people. This is... Gosh, this is getting, it's all getting a bit scary, you know? Yeah, Jesus must have been really exasperated at their failure to believe. They knew their Old Testament scriptures with all the promises of the Messiah's coming and the miraculous signs and miracles that he would do. They'd listened to John the Baptist speaking in the power of Elijah and preparing the way. They'd heard the Lord's teaching. They'd seen his miracles, yet they refused to believe. He must have been really angry with them. Oh no, no, I don't. I don't think he was angry. Well, exasperated, yes. Frustrated, yes. But from the context, I think he was really sad for the nation. At the end of chapter thirteen, we find Jesus weeping over the thought of what could happen to the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you! How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's in Luke 13, verses 34 to 35. Yeah, that's not the only time he wept over Jerusalem, is it? No, no. Luke uh, nineteen forty-one to 44 also describes how he wept over the city as he was preparing to ride into the city on the donkey. But here in chapter 13, it doesn't actually say that he wept, though he was obviously very sad and sorry for the city and for the people. Well, I guess that must have been the end of the line for Jerusalem. But is Jesus really pronouncing this final judgment on the city? No, I'm not sure it was quite as definite as that. In chapter 13, Jesus told a story about a fig tree. In that story, a man owns a fig tree for three years. He had been hoping it would bear fruit, but it didn't. Three years, that's the same length of time as the Lord's ministry, isn't it? Yes, and I'm sure that part of the story is not there just by chance. Anyway, he has decided that it's a waste of time. So he tells his gardener to cut down the fig tree. But in Luke 13, 8, the gardener pleads for the tree and says the following. Leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So the fig tree is given another chance then. So what happened the next year? Oh, well, we don't know. The story is left open-ended. Oh, great. What's the story about? I mean, what does the fig tree represent, do you think? 
Well, in the Bible, the fig tree is used as a symbol of Israel. It is in danger of being cut down because of its lack of fruit. Remember, John the Baptist called the people to show fruits of repentance. The story of the fig tree is left open-ended. We don't know whether, oh, well, from the story, we don't know if, if, if the next year the fig tree bore any fruit. But what about the, the reality, the fig tree of Israel, if you like? They did, in fact, eventually crucify their Messiah. Yes, that's true. But if you look at the beginning of Acts, you find Peter offering another chance to Israel to repent and accept Jesus as the Christ. In Acts 3, Peter preached to the Jewish people in Jerusalem and he said this. Men of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Well, it doesn't sound much like a second chance to me. Hang on a minute. Hang on. Don't, don't jump the gun yet. Peter hasn't finished. Look at what he says in Acts 3, 17 to 20. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and return to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. So then, Peter's like the gardener then, who attended the fig tree, mm. pleads for Israel to repent, and if they had repented, would God have sent Jesus back to them at that time? Well, that's what Peter says. Note, repent so that your sins may be wiped out. Repent so that the times of refreshing may come. Repent so that he may send the Christ. But, unfortunately, they didn't repent as a nation, did they? Sadly, not. They did not. Some individuals did repent, but not the nation as a whole, and certainly not its leaders. This goes on for 30 years, and then at the end of the Acts period, Paul pronounced that terrible, judgmental prophecy of Isaiah 6, a judgment upon Israel, which we read in Acts 28, verses 25 to 27. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. And then he finishes it off, finishes it off by saying the following in Acts 28, 28. Therefore, oh. I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And then just a few years later, Israel rebelled against Rome and the nation was wiped out. So Malachi's threat that God would strike the land with a curse came true after all. Yeah, I'm afraid so. So the fig tree was eventually cut down then? Yeah, well, yes. But that's not necessarily the end of Israel. Um, if you look at the context of that judgmental prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, Isaiah 6, 11 to 12, it shows that the judgment is just for a period of time. And I think other parts of scripture indicate that the fig tree will one day be replanted, if you want to continue with that metaphor. So then, Israel did suffer from rejecting their Messiah, but that story of the fig tree is described not so much as a metaphor in the Bible, but as a parable. 
And mm. Jesus told a lot of these parables. I don't really think we've looked at any of them yet, have we? No, we haven't. No, and there's quite a lot of parables in Luke, some of which are peculiar to Luke, unique to Luke, and don't appear in any of the other Gospels. So I think that we need to dedicate some time to parables, and we'll have a look at some of them. Um, we'll look at some of those parables in Luke if the in the next podcast, if that's okay with you. But anyway, good. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.